What does Judaism say about gender and transgender? So this is a topic that has recently become a very, very big issue, a very hot issue. Um, it's often, often thought as a progressive or 21st century question. And while we'll see that some of the technology is pretty modern, the concepts of gender and transgender have been around, have been debated for thousands of years. So let's begin by looking at an interesting question that came up in the 19th century in a city called Izmir, which was then Turkey's second, lar second largest city in the Ottoman Empire. So there was a young woman who got married to her husband and everything appeared fine. And after a few years of marriage, this woman's body changed. And instead of she became a man. And so they came to Rabbi Yosef Plagi, who was the rabbi of the town at the time, and asking what should be done with this woman. And the real question that they had was, this woman's husband no longer wanted to remain married to her anymore because she was no longer a woman, she was a man. And the question was, does this man now, former woman, need to be divorced from his husband? Do they need a divorce? Were they even married? Or is the marriage just annulled on its own since the wife is no longer a woman? Another question that came up, um, this is a little more recently, but still many decades ago, um, there was a 17-year-old yeshiva student who experienced occasional hermeturium, which is blood in the urine, and routine um, war, uh, med medical exams uh, revealed that this individual actually had a uterus and ovaries, despite being raised and always presumed to be a male, and the uh, hematuria was actually menstruation. So simple surgery would allow, and hormonal therapy would allow this boy to actually have children, um, since uh, he had a functioning ovary and uterus. So is he a boy and a girl? How should they treat this individual? Um, he already had a bar mitzvah. Could he get called up the Torah further? Should he continue putting on, wearing the tefillin that generally are worn by boys? What is the halacha? Another case, um, this one more recently, a couple decades ago, this one happened in Rotterdam in Holland. He was a Jewish boy who suffered from what we call today gender dysphoria. He was uncomfortable with his male gender he was born into and felt the strong need to be a female. And so he went through um, hormonal treatment and now became a woman, for many years had no Jewish affiliation, married a non-Jewish boy, lived happily for many years. But then at a certain point, uh, this woman's husband died. And now um, she had been living as a woman for many years but she now began to search for meaning and found Judaism. She started keeping Shabbat and kosher, but she wanted to know what is her halachic or Jewish status. Is she male? Is she female? Um, what is she? So here are just some examples of some of the issues that have come up um, in halach, in Jewish law, with regard to gender, transgender. So these questions are very important in our society today, where males and females have very unique roles. Some perhaps would like to see a genderless society and perhaps dream of this theoretical genderless society. In reality, in every society that humans have ever lived in, 
gender has always played a very important role in society. It's central to our identification. We identify as a man or a woman. It's central to the way we dress, whom we socialize with. There are also legal implications for gender, mostly regarding our legal identification. Also notably, um, for private activities, we separate genders. For bathrooms, we have separate bathrooms, shower rooms, changing rooms, sleeping quarters. We tend to separate men and women. The same is also true for sports, where genders are separated because of male dominance in physical activity and also to avoid inappropriate contact, inappropriate contact in contact sports. So in Judaism, these gender differences are also pronounced. Not only are there gender differences in all of society and every society in history has recognized differences in gender and genders have been very, uh, have had very clear differences, but Jewish law, halacha, also puts a very strong, puts, uh, there's a lot of rules for specific gender. For one, Jewish law expressly prohibits homosexuality. And we gave a class some time ago where we get, went into greater detail about the Jewish position on homosexuality. But Jewish law forbids it, and therefore we need to identify someone's gender in order to make sure that they only marry someone of the opposite gender. In addition, there are many commandments in the Torah, 14 to be exact, that apply to males, but not to females. They include wearing tefillin, men wear tefillin, wearing tzitzit, hearing the shofar, shaking the lulav. It also includes male-oriented mitzvahs that are only possible for males, such as the mitzvah of circumcision, um, and not to shave one's beard, um, it also includes rabbinic commands that are unique for males, such as praying three times a day, ideally with a quorum of 10, we call a minion, um, is a requirement for men, but not for women. And then there are other commandments that apply to females, but not to males. That includes the mitzvah of nida, a woman must go to the mikveh after she gets her menstrual cycle. There are also rabbinic commandments for women, such as lighting the Shabbat candles, and so therefore, it's very important to know whether an individual is male or female. Another reason in Judaism why it's important to be able to define someone's gender is for tzniot. Tzniot means, um, <coughs> is usually translated as modesty, um, but it requires men and women to dress differently. It forbids men and women from cross-dressing. And it requires to keep a certain separation between men and women um, who are not married and not family. It forbids men and women from touching each other, from seeing the parts of each other's bodies that are usually covered, or even from being alone in a room together unless they are a close relative for a single man or woman. We're also required to separate men and women during prayer. And so here again, we need to identify correct gender of an individual to know where they would fall with regard to tzniot, with regard to the tzniot rules. So, um, so and today this debate is found, of course, in our society in general, but it's definitely a question that needs to be addressed from a Jewish perspective.
So before we try to address what exactly Judaism says with regards to gender and transgender, it's important to understand a little bit about gender. And so we live in a mostly, mostly binary gender world that's split almost evenly between men and women, with half society men and half of society being women. And it's usually fairly easy to tell who is who because there's physical characteristics that generally separate the two groups. When a baby is born, we usually ask, is it a boy, is it a girl? And it's usually easily discernible at birth from, um, by looking at the child's genitals. And as we age, particularly with puberty, male and female characteristics become much more distinctive. And as a result, we act differently, we jest differently, and that creates very distinct cultural gender roles. Um, and as a result, uh, men and women, whether due to nature or due to nurture, men and women have very different temperaments, react to things somewhat differently, leading to the belief of men being from Mars and women being from Venus, or variations in the way men and women, um, uh, men and women uh, react and socialize. Um, and this and in their characteristic character as well. Um, there's some debate as to whether those variations are nature, whether we're born with them, they're genetic, or are they nurture, are they due to cultural influences. Uh, very likely it's a mixture of both, um, but it's a, it's a question that remains hotly debated and isn't really relevant to our discussion today. So not only is gender important in every society, and it's a very important part of our culture and every culture, it's also very important in Judaism. As we mentioned before, there are many halachas, many parts of Jewish law, for which it's important to know which gender somebody is from, somebody is. Somebody is. And, but a quick look at creation, the story of creation in Genesis makes it clear that humans were created with two distinct genders, as male and female. Not only humans, but all animals, the Torah says, were created with partners as two, with two, with two, male and female. Kabbalah teaches that the truth is that it's not only gender, but all of creation is made up of male and female. All of creation, everything that exists, has, two, has male and female. And that's because Kabbalah explains that male and female are really two sides of the same really two different parts of the same. In humans, a couple are really two halves of a whole. In everything, in creation, male and female are just two different sides. Kabbalah explains that on a deeper level, everything within creation is made up of matter, substance, and form, with the matter being the masculine side of everything, and form being the feminine side of everything. And so even men and women themselves have both a masculine side to them and a feminine side to them. However, within humanity or within a family, within a couple, there is a masculine side of the couple and a feminine side of the couple. But male and female is found for in everything. Now the exact reasons for this duality in creation is beyond the scope of this class today, but it's clear that this duality is found in all of creation 
everything is split in male and female, or not really split, more two sides of the same. And in the same way, humans also divide into male and female. So it's not just a something that developed accidentally in our culture, but created by God. We believe that God created that humans, as well as all of creation, should be split into male and female. So yeah, every rule, though, of course, has exceptions. Whenever there is a categorization, things are categorized, there's always going to be things that fall out of the categorization. And the same is true for male and female. While 99.7% of humanity have a clear gender, there is about 0.3% or one in 300 people who don't fit into the clear gender roles. Now, to be clear, there is some ambiguity in those numbers. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is highly politicized. Um, a lot of the research that has, done, that has been done has been with particular political motivation involved on both sides. And so um, it's hard to really get accurate numbers. But it's definitely a very small percentage, and yet it exists. If it is 0.3%, then in a country of over 300 million people, we would have over a million people that would not fit into a clear gender. So it's still a very, even though it's a small percentage, it's still a significant number of people. Among Jews, if we live in a Jewish community, an international Jewish community that numbers about 15 million people, and about 45,000 people would not be part, would not fit into any particular gender. So among this small group that does not fit into the gender roles that classify all of society, that society in general splits into, there are really two different groups. Some, and again, the numbers are debated as to what percentage that is, have what, what's called ambiguous gender. In other words, they don't have clear signs of being male or female. Uh, the English word we use for that, that is hermaphrodite. In Hebrew, we use a Greek word, androgynous, which is also used in English as well, android, androgynous. Sometimes such a person, or the more commonly used term is intersex. The other group um, are people that do have a clear biological gender, but are psychologically uncomfortable with their biological gender. And they would be happier if they had the role of the opposite gender from what their biological gender is. The medical term used for this condition is gender dysphoria, and often it's just called transsexual. But now most of the political debate in recent years has revolved around the second group. However, it's important to look at both groups, and both groups are part of society, and, um, and the gender status of both must be understood, and both, as we'll see, will be relevant. Um, and the two, as we'll see, will be linked. Now, since the ability, hormonal treatments and surgeries 
to be able to actually help someone with gender dysphoria change their gender is fairly new. Historically, Judaism dealt much more with the hermaphrodite because that was something that existed forever. It was around in ancient times. So while the transgender questions are fairly new, we could actually use the responses that Judaism had to hermaphrodites um, and extrapolate that to the Jewish response in for transgender as well. And so to get a better understanding of what Judaism says about both the hermaphrodite the um, as well as the uh, as well as the transsexual um, in order to un better understand what Judaism says about it let's just un get a little bit of an understanding medically of how someone can develop an ambiguous gender so from, as we said, for over 99% of the people, their gender is clear. And that is because we know that um, everybody has two pro gender chromosomes that they get from one from each of their parents. Um, someone with two X chromosomes would be a girl. Somebody with an XY chromosome would be a boy. However, that doesn't necessarily always happen. Sometimes people have chromosome complexities. They can end up getting three or more chromosomes. Um, they could be an XXY or an XYY. They can have more than two chromosomes and they can still be normal in everything else. And yet due to that extra chromosome, they will have some ambiguity in their gender. What can also happen is even people that are definitively XY or XX chromosome can still grow and become the other gender due to what's called sex differentiation. What happens is about six to eight weeks in utero, the fetus of a healthy XY male will release um, what's called a hormone called testis determining factor or TDS. And that develops testicles. Once the testicles are developed in the boy, then the boy will continue to develop um, as a full grown male, continue to release further hormones that will allow them to develop as a full grown male. And later at, puter at puberty, those testicles will release testosterone and that will lead to the signs of male puberty. However, if no TDS is released, then the fetus will naturally continue to develop as a female with ovaries and a uterus. Now, sometimes an XY fetus is, can fail to release TDS and as a result, develop into a female. What can also happen is that an XX fetus, which would usually be a, turn into a girl, can, for whatever reason, release this TDS and as a result, develop into a male. So it is possible. So now sometimes what happens is the release is only partial. So it creates a mix of a male and female characteristics. What can also happen, we know now, now is that sometimes somebody can be entirely a full, healthy male and actually have an XX chromosome. 
and someone can be a full, healthy female and have an XY chromosome. It's rare, but it definitely does exist. The exact numbers where um, there's some debate about. Amazingly, the Talmud tells us, speaking about, we mentioned earlier in the Parsha, um, Leah was able to pray for the change in the gender of her fetus. The Talmud tells us that until 40 days after conception, one is still able to ask God to change the gender. After that, it is too late. Interestingly, today we know that this, that the period when the gender can change ends at about eight weeks. When we say eight weeks in modern, um, in, in medical terms today, we always count from, uh, not from, we don't count from conception, but the weeks in pregnancy today, for whatever reason, are counted from the previous, the woman's previous menstrual cycle. And so, which is usually about 12 to 14 days before conception. And so when we say eight weeks, eight weeks would normally, uh, would norm, would normally be 56 days, but you actually have to minus 12 to 14 days. And so, in other words, because it really, we count, start counting the weeks eight, 14 days before conception on average. And so, therefore, as a result, um, really the time that a baby can change gender still is really about 42 days after conception, right around when the Talmud said it, 40 days after conception. So it really, we know today that statement in the Talmud to be medically true. So anyway, as a result, some people do have a level of ambiguous gender. Um, it also, of course, creates that possibility that some people assume to be one gender, later discover that they're really a different gender. So, what would Judaism say about such an individual? So in the Torah, we always use the Greek term androgynous for the hermaphrodite, that today is also called intersex. And as we mentioned before, Jewish law has distinct rules for males and for females. Different mitzvot, different commandments for males, different commandments for females. And so this leads to the question of how a hermaphrodite should be classified in Jewish law as a male or female. And so our ancient Jewish traditions have dealt with this question extensively, in fact, the Mishnah, which is the first recorded book of our Jewish tradition, has a special chapter um, dedicated to the androgynous. There's a chapter called Androgynous that is dedicated just to this subject. This um, subject is discussed extensively in the Talmud, the exact halachic status of a hermaphrodite for various different um, halachic issues as well as in later Jewish works. And without getting into the great detail, generally, we, um, Jewish law would say that Androgynous has a unique status. They are neither male nor female, but they, they rather don't fit into either, and therefore for some things we consider them male, for some things we consider them female, um, and, if, and there's rather um, quite a complexity in Jewish law as to exactly how we would consider the androgynous for each and everything.
Now, interestingly, while the Talmudic sages have extensively had extensive discussions about the androgynous or hermaphrodite, you've probably never met one. That's firstly because they make up a very, very, very small percentage of the population, um, probably less than one in a thousand, although again, we said there's some debate as to exactly what percentage they are. But it is very possible that you do know a hermaphrodite, but they appear to be usually female. And that's because throughout mo the, most of the 20th century, the standard medical solution for hermaphrodite was cosmetic surgery. And so usually, um, for whatever reason, doctors find it easier to make someone into a female than a male. And so us usually they would cosmetically fix them to make them female and they are raised as female. However, recent search has actually shown that hermaphrodites that have undergrown surgery often later become transgender, preferring the other gender than what the surgeons had created for them when they were children. Um, in addition, a large percentage of surgeries cause scarring. Sometimes they cause other problems. And so today there's actually a new intersex movement that encourages hermaphrodites to celebrate their agender or their non-gender status, their non-binary status. The Torah, as we mentioned, has always recognized that while humanity is generally bi-gender, and there are two genders in humanity, there are some people that don't fit into those genders. In halacha, in Jewish law, the hermaphrodite, or what halacha calls the androgynous, is neither male nor female, rather holds a unique status, and therefore did not encourage cosmetic surgery or the child to be raised as one or the other, rather they should be raised as an independent individual, neither male nor female, something that today is, for the last, for centuries, was never accepted in general society outside of the Jewish community, but today is once again being recognized that that's the best thing for these children and later adults. Any questions? Um. You'll probably get this. Are you? Can you hear me? Okay. You'll probably get to this later, but just in case you don't. Um, so, if they can be raised as either a male or a female, then what sort of mitzvahs? I mean, do they do? So they shouldn't be raised as either a male or a female. They should be raised as. Uh, I know neither. Neither. Right. Neither. Exactly. Right. So then, so then, what mitzvahs would they do? Twentieth century, we made this. You know, we, we've been doing that raising them as male or female, but Jewish law did not ever encourage that. Uh, yeah. Now, because they have this kind of separate status, um, there's a lot of complexity in halacha, in which mitzvahs they do, what, where, when they're like male, when they're like female, and um, exactly. So I don't want to get into the details. Um, as I mentioned, there are, it's discussed in great detail in the Talmud and many, many other Jewish works. Um, it's something that yeah, there's really a lot written about. Um, and so I, I, I think the details are beyond the scope of our class today. Um, in short, they have to do mitzvahs both for male and for female. Okay. But there's, there's, some, there's quite a bit of complexity of exactly what they do and how they do it. What would you put on their birth certificate? 
That's a very good question. So one of the issues that have been raised today is um, in this country is, uh, I mean, the main legal importance, especially since gay marriage has been legalized, um, the main legal impact of whether one is male or female is simply for identification. Um, there's been a movement today and a number of states now recognize the ability to put a non-gender on their identification as well, neither male nor female. Um, so it's really just, I mean, it's, it's really just a um, technical or bureaucratic question. Um, it's really not a, I guess, meaningful one. And um, there's no reason if they're not male or female, why you can't have that on their birth certificate. If they're not male or female, would they have the same um, biological uh, body parts? If they had the same... It, it really varies um, from, because there's a lot of different types um, and could come in all many, many different ways. Um, so it varies, and, um, but it's people who don't have clear male or female. They're often a mix. They have some male, um, some distinctive male side, some female, sometimes they have neither. It varies. So in addition to the challenge of ambiguous genders that Judaism has dealt with for thousands of years, another challenge has risen um, for people who have clear biological genders but are unhappy with their biological gender. And we have some evidence that there have been transgender people or people that were uncomfortable with their biological gender throughout history. But this problem has only really been recognized in the 20th century. The movement really began in the early 20th century in Europe, spread to the US and other countries by the middle of the 20th century. Psychologists call this coined the term gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder for such people. But the more common used term for someone who's uncomfortable with their biological gender would be transgender. So this is someone who does have a clear gender, um, is born with a clear gender, uh, but they're psychologically uncomfortable with that gender. Now, unlike other identity disorders, and there are many, gender identity disorder is much easier to fix um, because we could exchange the individual's experience to conform to their preferred identity. Um, and since, mu since much of gender differences is cultural and social, so transgender people can often simply dress and act like their gender preference. They could socialize with and act based on their gender preference um, by hiding their biological gender identity. Now, that seems to have been done <clears throat> throughout much of history but it would have been historically um, difficult to do because normally, historically, societies usually rejected people who tried changing their gender. However, in the last few years, there's been a huge change in Western countries where lar large segments of society have become a lot more acceptive, accepting to what's called gender fluidity. And so it's led to a large number of people experimenting, living as the other gender, or even changing their gender long-term, um, at least in their culturally and so socially acting, dressing like the other gender. Now, modern medicine, starting in the last 
60 years or so, has allowed transgender people to receive hormonal treatment that would actually allow them to change their physical body. And so their hormonal changes then allows these transsexuals to identify with their preferred gender and actually give a public appearance of their preferred gender. Um, a lot of hormonal changes are reversible. Some of them though um, are not. Um, more recently, modern medicine has allowed for what's called sex reassignment surgeries, which are um, essentially um, surgeries that have been done for the last couple of decades with improving levels of success that can actually change a person's body and make them appear like the other gender, at least um, externally. So when it comes to Judaism, as we mentioned, gender plays a very important role. And so the question is, can someone who has, is psychologically uncomfortable, has a defined biological gender, but psychologically uncomfortable with their gender, can they change genders? So, so the Torah has a rule. The Torah, one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, or actually two, of the 613 commandments of the Torah is a prohibition for men and women not to cross-dress. The Torah prohibits men to dress as women and the Torah prohibits women to dress as men. And according to our oral traditions, this is not only in the clothing that they wear, but also in hairstyle, trying to style one's hair to look like the other gender, wearing makeup in a way that one would look like the other gender, and so the Torah explicitly, in two of our Torah prohibitions, forbids men from dressing or making themselves look like women, and forbids women from dressing or making themselves look like men. And so somebody who has a clear biological gender, the Torah clearly would forbid them to dress or make themselves look like the other gender. Now, Hormonal treatments, taking hormonal treatments to make one look like the other gender is not explicitly prohibited in the Torah because when the Torah was given, hormonal treatments didn't exist. However, modern scholars who have discussed this um, widely agree that the spirit of the law, um, which is that an individual cannot make themselves look like the other gender, the spirit of the law forbidding cross-dressing would also prohibit hormonal treatment as well. So they're not explicitly prohibited in the Torah, it didn't exist then, but by, as an extension of cross-dressing, presumably hormonal, hormonal treatment would be prohibited as well. Um, the other thing that, that is usually done for transgender is, um, is sex reassignment surgery, which is a surgery that um, where people can change their um, general area to um, look like the other gender. Um, and so for a man who wishes to change, have sex reassignment surgery, this would also bring upon an additional prohibition. The Torah forbids a person from destroying their reproductive organs. This is both for humans it's also forbidden for us to destroy reproductive organs of animals. And so changing a, wo a woman to a man would not necessarily involve any prohibition besides 
possibly a extension of the cross-dressing prohibition, but changing a man to a woman, which would involve, uh, if changing a man to a woman, um, which would um, involve uh, castration or destroying one's ability to procreate reproductive organs would be explicitly, again, prohibited in the Torah. So, so, Rabbi, we are prohibited from spayed and neutering our uh, pets? <laughs> Doing it ourselves, yes. We're allowed to have non-Jews do it for us. But we are forbidden to do it ourselves, yes. Thank you. Um, and so, therefore, it is clear that somebody who has um, gender dysphoria, um, somebody who, uh, who is uncomfortable with their biological gender, would not be allowed to. Jewish law would forbid them from acting, dressing, hormonal treatment, um, or even surgery to try to make themselves as the other gender, to try to be um, similar to the other gender. Um, if somebody, um, if somebody does so, um, so, well, before I get to if somebody does so, so there's been a strong argument, um, to permit perhaps gender reassignment, um, rather, or gender changes, um, because often people that are transgender and are unable to change their gender, people with gender dysphoria, um, who are uncomfortable in their natural gender and um, uh, feel stuck in their unwanted gender, they often suffer multiple psychological problems, which often include depression, which can often be, which is usually suicidal, and can often be fatal. In other words, um, research ha does suggest, um, there may be some politicization of this research, but the research does suggest that transgenders who go through gender reassignment are overall healthier mentally. And so, and after their reassignment, the likeliness of their, of their depression goes down dramatically along with their suicide threat level. And so if we would accept this research as valid and modern psychology does, then we could argue that even though there are Jewish law, some of the Torah's commandments would prohibit an individual gender dysphoria to change genders, one could argue that we can do so anyway in order to save their life since they are suffering depression, um, suicidal, in order to save their life, we should be able to allow them to go through the gender reassignment surgery. So this qu a similar question was actually addressed by a um, great scholar today in Israel, Rabbi Yitzchak Zilberstein, in a totally different context. There was a butcher, who a kosher butcher, who had been caught with kosher violations. And so the rabbinic certification that was certifying the butcher as kosher decided to remove their rabbinic certification. As a result, the butcher fell into depression and had become suicidal. There were those who argued that despite this butcher having lost their kosher certification due to, due to kosher violations, 
the kosher certification should be returned to the butcher, although he cannot be trusted, because his life is in danger. And we are permitted to transgress all any Torah law, almost any Torah law, in order to save a life. So we should restore this individual's rabbinic certification, this butcher's rabbinic certification, even though we don't trust that the butcher is really kosher in order to save a life. And so Rabbi Zilberstein, dealing with this question, um, pointed out that if we allow for any mitzvah transgression for anyone who is suicidal, then there would be no end to this argument. In other words, anyone can then say, I'm, I'm suffering depression, I'm suicidal, I can then break the rules. I can eat a cheeseburger because I'm suicidal and suffering from depression and I'm going to commit suicide if you don't let me eat the cheeseburger. <laughs> if we think about it in our own legal system, we can, if we'll do anything to save a life and break the law, we're allowed to break laws to save a life. Well, anyone can say I'm suicidal, so I can break the rules. And then your whole legal system falls away. And so therefore, it should be clear that we don't allow for mitzvah transgression to placate suicidal urges. Just as we wouldn't allow for breaking laws in order to placate somebody's suicidal needs, um, suicidal feelings, um, we wouldn't allow, that's not an excuse to break a law. You can't say I broke that law because I was feeling suicidal and is that the only way to save my life. That never works as an excuse in a court. Um, you can't use that to get out of punishment or burglary or whatever else it may have been, doesn't work. Um, and so in the same way, um, you cannot do it in Judaism either. Um, the fact that somebody is suicidal is not enough of an excuse to um, be able to break Jewish law. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't take suicidal concerns very seriously. We absolutely should take suicidal concerns very seriously and um, should do anything to save somebody who's suffering depression or suicide, but that still doesn't allow us to break, to break the rules or break the laws um, because someone is suicidal. Um, so what though happens when somebody does um, change their gender? Um, what happens if somebody does change their gender? What is their halachic status now? So to be clear, um, so one interesting question that had been raised, and um, we mentioned that earlier was of a um, fellow who had, was originally, this was raised 150 years ago, um, of a fellow, uh, a person who had originally been a, woman and then over time um, she was married and then later she, they discovered that she was a man. Um, that could happen sometimes um, where they reach puberty and suddenly they start getting male, uh, they appear more masculine. This woman could have gotten married early in her early teens which was common and then reach puberty a couple years later, reach puberty very late 
And so what is the halachic status of somebody who changes their gender? Whether naturally, it can happen sometimes that naturally somebody originally appeared to be one gender and then now appears to be a different gender, or someone can actually change their gender. Um, uh, somebody can actually change their gender um, through um, gender transformation, whether just acting as the other gender, or going through hormonal treatment, or even um, sex, sex re reassignment surgery. So to understand that how we would treat somebody who did go ahead and change their gender, um, it's important to first understand how, um, it's important to first understand how we define gender. So in order to know what we'd consider them now that they've gone through this gender change, we have to be able to better define gender. For most people, it's pretty clear that they're male or female. We've seen that the hermaphrodite is someone who is neither male nor female. So how would you know which gender somebody is? Not always is it 100% clear. How would you define somebody as a male or a female? So people often suggest that we should look at their, um, their, uh, uh, their chromosomal makeup. If they are an XY individual, they're male. If they're an XX individual, they are female. However, we've discovered that there's a percentage of the population, there's some dispute as to how large a percentage, it's a pretty small percent, but there is a significant percentage of the po population whose external gender is not consistent with their genetic makeup. And we explained earlier that that can happen due to the release of or lack of release of a hormone called TDS in utero. Someone with an XX chromosome can turn out to be a full male later in life and have children as a male. Somebody who has an XYY chromosome can turn out to be a full female and have children as a female, all depending on the hormonal releases when they were in utero. So would we in all honesty, consider somebody who is 100% male, um, who can even have children, though they'll be all girls, um, and um, has an XX chromosome, would we consider them a woman? Clearly not. And for that matter, a woman who has an XY chromosome, but is a, has a full ovaries, uterus, would we consider that a male? Clearly not. So clearly we don't look only at the chromosomal makeup um, when looking at somebody's gender. So we have to find, look at other defining characteristics to figure out to define somebody's gender. So in modern halacha, among modern scholars, there have really been two conflicting viewpoints. Some scholars have pointed out that in Judaism, we only look at what we can see. If you can't see it with the naked eye, it doesn't count. What we can see, what we can feel. A classic example of that is the Torah forbids us from eating or eating insects. In fact, we're required to check all of our vegetables 
to ensure particularly of fruit and vegetables, particularly the, those that have, tend to have insect infestation, to check them to make sure there are no insects on them. But what about microscopic insects? What about insects that cannot be seen? Uh, a couple years ago, it was discovered that in New York City water, there were these tiny worms that generally, that could be found in the water that generally could not be seen to the naked eye. So chances are that they're in the food that we're eating. So are we forbidden from eating them? So the Torah tells us, so the rule is that only things that are visible to the naked eye are considered, oh, do, we, do we consider for halacha, for Jewish law? And if it's not visible to the naked eye, we don't worry about it. It has no impact in halacha. So based on that, Rav Eliezer Waldenberg, um, who was one of the greatest Jewish scholars in the second half of the, 21st, of the 20th century, he was, um, lived in Jerusalem. Um, based on that, he said that the most important definition um, defining sign between male and female has to be visible to the eye. Not in an x-ray, not, um, not in genetic testing. It has to be visible to the eye. What is clearly visible to the eye? So he says it's the most clear um, differentiation is testicles. If someone has visible testicles, they are a boy. Somebody without visible testicles, they are a girl. And therefore, in a case that we, I mentioned earlier at the very beginning, where there was a child that you know, was assumed to be a boy, um, they looked, um, uh, sorry, it, it, um, that was assumed to be a, a boy, but they did not have any visible um, testicles, but they was, had still been assumed by their parents to be a boy. And later, that child turned out to actually be a girl, um, turned out to have ovaries and a uterus, and um, what they had thought was a penis was really just an enlarged clitoris. And, um, they, and this child turned out to be a girl, and he said, yes, this child can be raised as a girl since they do not have, um, since they do not have visible um, testicles. By the same extension, though, he also said that children that had been raised as a girl because they didn't have visible testicles and later they were discovered to actually be male because they had testicles. They just had never dropped. They were still inside. Um, he said those children should also be raised as a girl, even though they have testicles and they're a boy for everything, because visibly you don't see the testicles Therefore, they would be considered halachically a they would be considered halachically a girl. Other scholars who have debated this, notably Rav Moshe Tendler from New York, um, said you cannot only look at external view; you have to take other things in account as well. If this child we can see in an X-ray, the child has testicles; they're clearly a boy, and we should consider them a boy as well. So. And this really leads to the question of this transgender individual who has gone through gender reassignment surgery. We mentioned that halacha does not allow one to do so, but if they did, what would be their halachic status? What would be their legal status? Would, be they, would they be considered a boy? 
Would they be considered a girl? What would we consider them? So this was the question that came, that we mentioned earlier before Rabbi Yosef Plagi, the 19th century um, Turkish scholar from Izmir. And this was about a case that we spoke about where a woman had been married and um, she turned into a man. Um, it is possible, of course, what presumably happened from what we now know medically is uh, it was probably somebody who had um, a, their testicles had not come down and um, therefore they did not, they presumed that it was a girl. They married them as a girl and, um, be, uh, and then later they reached, they probably married in their very early teens, um, which was common back then. And then um, later they reached puberty in their mid-teens, which can happen as well, particularly for boys, which reached puberty a little later and they released testosterone and they started developing their, um, and they started developing male features and they were clearly a male. And so for this person, are they considered a woman? Do they need to be divorced from their husband? So today we would know um, that such a person medically was probably a boy all along and just was unaware of it. At that time though, he didn't know that. He presumed that this person had originally been born a girl and then miraculously turned into a boy. He was unaware of the medical uh, understanding that we have today. And so he said, that yes, a person can change. You could start off as one thing and then be something else. First they were a girl, now they're a boy. And therefore he says, as a result, they no longer need to, since she, when she was married, she was a woman. Um, now he's a man. They don't need a divorce because they're not the same person they were before. They've changed genders. So therefore they don't need to divorce their husband. Um, and so Rav Waldenberg uses this same logic, saying, well, today we know that people don't naturally change from one to another. You're either one or the other to start with. However, he uses this same logic for people who actually change their gender. He says, if somebody changes their gender, was originally a man, but is now a woman, we would follow their external genitals. Um, as we mentioned earlier, he follows only external genitals. And therefore, even if they were previously married, they don't need to get divorced because they're now a different person. They're now a different gender. So though it would be forbidden for someone to change their gender or have gender reassignment, if they did so, Rav Waldenberg believed that they did indeed halachically change their gender and are now the new gender. However, other scholars disagree with this view. And that's because in arguing that gender reassignment surgery um, makes a person a new gender, Rav Waldenberg assumed that the individual now has the full genitals of a new gender, of their, uh, the other gender. However, the truth is that medically that's not the case. Because if the defining sign of a male is that they have testicles, um, in gender reassignment surgery, they cannot create testicles. And so the woman still does not, this man, this transgender man, still does not get testicles. They may be able to make them look, their genitals look male, but they still don't have testicles. And so they still would not be halachically a man. And by the same extension, a man who has gone through gender reassignment surgery to become a woman, although their testicles have been removed, um, 
Nowhere, the Talmud many times discusses castration, and nowhere does the Talmud suggest that as a result of castration, a person becomes the other gender. So, therefore, most scholars, although Rav Waldenberg was of the view that someone that goes through gender reassignment surgery is now halachically their new gender, most scholars and the consensus generally is that someone that does have gender reassignment surgery does not change their halachic gender. So how then should this individual be treated once they have changed their gender, whether just through cross-dressing, which we said is forbidden in Jewish law, through hormonal treatment, which we said is also forbidden, or through gender reassignment surgery? How should they be treated? The one simple issue that has been a big deal um, for a lot of people has been names, pronouns, has been of grave concern for a lot of people. How should we treat them? So in Jewish law, name's important. How you call someone up um, for the Torah reading, how you write their name in their ketubah um, is important. Or the divorce documents, they get divorced. Um, or in other things, we use when we pray for people who are sick, we use their names. What names should we use? Well, people could use any name. In fact, I have met plenty of men that maybe because of their parents' ignorance or their own ignorance in Jewish traditions and Jewish culture, went by what would normally be female names, Jewish female names, or women that have gone by Jewish male names. It's not that rare. But you want to change your name to a name that's usually common with the other gender. There's nothing wrong with that halachically. Uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't follow that. A person wishes to be addressed with a different pronoun. If that's what makes them comfortable, there's no reason why not to. There's nothing halachically wrong with addressing, addressing somebody uh, with their preferred pronoun. Um, however, um, what about when it comes to laws of separating genders, such as in the synagogue? In Jewish traditions, um, men and women sit separately in a synagogue while praying. Where would they sit? So the reason for Smiyot is modesty for people not to, for they're not, we don't want during prayer, which is a holy time, there shouldn't be um, interaction between the sexes um, creating discomfort or creating um, unholy thoughts during prayer. And so clearly, if a man, a former man who's now a woman, looks like a woman and dresses like a woman, Clearly, it would make people uncomfortable if they would sit on the male side, men's side of the mechitza. And so clearly, they would have to sit on the women's side where, where they're, as they now appear, and the same would be vice versa. If they appear like a man, they would now have to sit on the male side. They would sit on whichever side they're most, uh, they would sit on whichever side they're most, uh, they, they look like. Otherwise, it would make people uncomfortable. Who can they marry, though? They can, someone who has a transgender, so again, we've mentioned that um, the Torah, gen, the consensus generally is that someone who's transgender, halacha still considers them their original gender, and the Torah explicitly prohibits homosexuality, so they would be forbidden from marrying somebody of their original gender. They would only be able to marry somebody of their, the, the opposite to their original gender or their current gender. Um, what about when it comes to mitzvot? So what, when it comes to mitzvot, if they retain their original gender, then if their original gender was male, they would be required to follow male commandments. If their original gender was female, they would be required to follow female commandments. Um, assuming that halachically, 
we don't actually consider them to be a changed gender. Any questions? We're running over time, but we're almost done. Susan? I think, I think you treated a very complex problem and you, you, you really did, um, within the time limit you had, you covered it very well. Oh, I didn't think you could do it. <laughs> did a great job. Okay, so let me just conclude. So it's important to note that nobody should ever be mistreated because of their gender preferences or changes. And it's important that we respect um, transgenders, transsexuals, um, and appreciate the great struggle that they go through. Um, they, transsexuals are, are um, hermaphrodites, suffer because for reasons, naturally for reasons that are totally beyond their control, and um, they're, they don't fit in, and it's of course uncomfortable. Transgenders suffer because they're uncomfortable in their current state. Um, and so even those who are committed to Torah, but fail from time to time, we have to respect the battle they're waging. In other words, even if they don't follow Jewish laws, we just laid it out. Um, we still have to respect everyone and understand the struggle they're going through. And we have to make sure that we see them in context. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is people with little regard for other laws of the Torah, there are 613 commandments. People with little regard for all the other commandments are only concerned with these, with commandments regarding gender, regarding sexuality, and all the other commandments of the Torah don't bother them. However, in halacha, we, when we look at somebody who transgressed a Torah law, we look at the transgression, but we look also at the context and the motivation behind it. So when, when categorizing somebody as a transgressor, or in Hebrew, a bumar, um, they're divided into two different categories in, in, in Torah. Some are called mumar lahachis. A mumar lahachis is a defiant rebel. Somebody who transgresses Torah law to despite, to spite God. Somebody who can easily get kosher food, but they want to eat non-kosher food just to spite God. They wear clothing mixed with wool and linen in order to spite God, because one of the commandments is not to wear clothing mixed with wool and linen, not because it's comfortable, not because it's fashionable, just to spite God. So the defiant rebel is considered a religious outcast and lose a lot of rights and privileges um, that we give fellow Jews. And that's because their spite for the Torah shows that they don't believe in it and want to exclude themselves from, from it. The other kind of transgressor is called a mumar leteyavim, a lustful rebel. That's a person who eats non-kosher, not because they have anything against God or against kosher, but they simply like it better. Or maybe it's cheaper, easier to get hold of. It also includes the Mumar Lateavona Lustful Rebel and includes all sexual transgressors who virtually always transgress out of lust. So the lustful transgressor is always considered part of the Jewish people and treated as such. Because the only reason they're transgressing is because of their lust. They still believe in, they still value the Torah. But most people today who regularly transgress Torah laws are what we could consider lustful rebels. In other words, they don't, they're not transgressing to spite God, 
It's just more convenient. It's easier to go against the Torah's laws. So a transgender who's suffering from their gender dysphoria, it would be considered also a lustful rebel. And even if they did break the Jewish laws and whether cross-dress or even have gender reassignment surgery, they're still a lustful rebel and a full part of the Jewish community. And so a transgender who changes their gender, in other words, um, is in a similar halachic group as someone who eats non-kosher or doesn't keep the laws of family purity or has premarital relations or extramarital relations. The exception to the lustful rebel rule, though, is the laws of Shabbat. Shabbat is considered the most central ritual of Judaism. And for many halachic privileges that only fellow Jews, for example, for who can be trusted for kosher supervision and the like, the defining rule is they have to be Shomer Shabbat, keeping Shabbat. Somebody who doesn't keep Shabbat, who doesn't guard the Shabbat, would be considered outside of the Jewish community um, because of their desecration of Shabbat. So if we put it in context, a Shabbat observant transgender is in a better halachic position than a Shabbat desecrator. Or to put it a little differently, a transgender who does not keep Shabbat, their Shabbat desecration is of greater concern for the Jewish community than their transgender status. So often people take these things and put them out, take them out of context. It's important to remember what's more important than Judaism. Now, in addition to all of these considerations above, it's important to remember that today we have a little bit of a different perspective on what can be called Torah transgressors. Why is that? The Talmud discusses the case of a child that was taken captive and raised by idolatry. The child has no knowledge or practice of Judaism. So now we meet them and we tell them, you're Jewish, you were born Jewish, but they were raised as an idolater. So we cannot, the Talmud says, you cannot reasonably accept this child to keep all of Jewish law. And you cannot hold them accountable for their lack of Jewish observance because they were raised without it. Maimonides, the Rambam, takes this idea a step further in his treatment of Karaites. Karaites were a sect that broke away from Judaism in the 8th century. They had their own communities for hundreds of years throughout the Middle East and beyond. And by the 13th century, they were hundreds of years old. And there was an established community in Egypt where the Rambam lived. And the Rambam said, do not think that Karaites are transgressors of Jewish law, of halacha, of the commandments, which who, who should be ostracized from the Jewish community, because they're in the category of a of the child who was taken captive. They were never raised with Judaism, with proper Judaism. They were never raised with Jewish law. So based on this assumption, anybody by extension who is raised by non-practicing Jewish parents has the same handicap as a child who was raised by non-Jews. So any Jew today who is raised in non-observant homes are not tra considered transgressors for any transgressions that they were not raised with. They don't know better. Even once they learn about the Jewish practice, you can't expect them to change their lifestyle 
since they weren't raised with it, and therefore they're not culpable for ritual transgressions that they were not raised with. Now, of course, we should actively encourage everybody who was not raised with Jewish practice to adopt Torah practices, but we cannot expect them to, nor would we ostracize them from the community for not doing so. Now, due to the changing dynamics in the modern Jewish community, many have extended this concept of Tinok Shanishpa, this captive child, even further. Not only applying it to people who are raised by non-observant parents, Rav Isaac Herzog, the former chief rabbi of Israel, said, this really applies to anyone who didn't get a solid Jewish education, even if their parents kept certain commandments, but they didn't appreciate it because they didn't have a strong Jewish education. Rav Tzvi Hirschchayes, a 19th century German scholar, suggests that this even applies to people who were raised and did get a strong Jewish education and were raised in a religious home, but left Judaism due to social pressure. And therefore, the only true transgressors today that we would ostracize from the community would be those who would coax others to leave Judaism, those who actively encourage others to leave Judaism. But today, we really, in other words, we only consider people transgressors or ostracized people from the Jewish community when they did certain things outside of the pale of Judaism, only when we had close-knit, organized, structured Jewish communities where everybody was observant of Jewish law. Today, where our community is assimilated, where we live among non-Jews around us who don't follow Judaism, where most Jews don't even, aren't even raised with Jewish practice, we don't ostracize anyone from the Jewish community. So, as a result, since we live in a society that largely accepts homosexuality and gender change, um, while these are not permissible in any way under Jewish law, if somebody does so, that wouldn't affect their ability to participate in the Jewish community. We wouldn't hold them culpable for what they're doing if they didn't know any better, if they weren't raised with Judaism if they weren't raised in a community that told us that such things were forbidden by God. So based on the above, it's clear that transgender should be accepted in our communities with open arms. There's no reason to exclude them from any part of Judaism. We should respect them and love them as fellow Jews and as human beings. Of course, this is on one condition that they don't openly advocate for actions that the Torah forbids within the Jewish community. Someone who advocates for breaking Jewish law, say a transgender openly advocates for transgender within the Jewish community, would be equal to somebody who comes to, gets involved in the Jewish community and openly encourages people to eat non-kosher or to desecrate the Shabbos. And such a person who openly encourages people to leave Judaism or transgress Jewish law would not be accepted if they encourage others to break Jewish law. But somebody who just wants to participate in their current state, there's no reason why we should stop them from participating. While we can't allow them to use the community as a venue to promote ideas contrary to Torah, but we definitely should have the greatest respect for them, the struggles they live with. And so long as they are not advocating for anything contrary to Torah, we definitely should accept them with open arms. Now, in the past, the transgender movement has brought the plight of transgenders. In the past couple of years, the transgender movement has brought the plight of people with gender dysphoria to the forefront of public discussion. 
And really the LGBT movement has changed the mind of Americans in ways that no other movement has probably in our history. Now as Jews who are merciful and empathize with all suffering people, we should commend them for bringing the suffering of these people to the forefront of our conversation. We should commend them for encouraging and promoting research, proving without doubt that gender dysphoria is real and has to be addressed. However, the truth is that the transgender movement has also been very intolerant. It's been extremely intolerant of anybody who doesn't think like them. Mm -hmm. They've refused to accept or even consider a position like the Torah, which prohibits gender changes. And so therefore somebody suffering gender dysphoria who wants to remain loyal to Torah is ostracized from the transgender community. Unfortunately, the Jewish community has been slow to change its attitude towards transgenders, despite our better understanding of their predicament. And unfortunately, a lot of Jewish leaders who have been lax in other Jewish rules have been unfair to transgender people. And this failure to accepting them has led many of them to reject the Jewish community or attempt to reform it. And not only doing so, we're pushing these people away from Judaism, but we're being cruel to a vulnerable segment of our population. The transgender community lives with a lot of problems, including high levels of depression and suicide. And while there may be many reasons for that, definitely if we're positive, accepting attitude from family, friends would be very helpful. And so it's up to us to be warm and accepting to transgender people, particularly transgender people who want to follow Torah particularly those who are not accepted within their own community because of their commitment to Torah. And while we can clearly state the Torah's position on transgender, that we don't, Torah forbids gender change of somebody with gender dysphoria, um, we can um, provide shelter to transgender people who do want to value Torah traditions and realize that whatever they may, transgressions they may do, they're no worse than the other imperfections that everybody else has. And so rather what we can do is pray and hope for a time where there is no more challenges, no more suffering, hopefully soon with the coming of Moshiach. Hopefully that's given you a better perspective on the Jewish approach to both the transsexual and the transgender, um, and uh, hopefully a lot that we can learn from and to uh, act upon um, recognizing that the Torah's attitude rules as well as the way we should treat them. Thank you for joining us.